you have a Bible, open up to Romans chapter 4 with me. Romans chapter 4, appreciate last week uh, Pastor Joe filling in for me. Liz and I got to represent our church down in Arkansas at a place called Cross Church and uh, just share with them God's activity in our church and what He's doing. And uh, one of the, my favorite things was Friday night, I got to learn how to square dance. And uh, not really, I, I really did learn how to square dance, but it wasn't fun. And um, I thought I was really, really good and thought I was really getting the hang of things until my wife looks at me and she's like, you were messing everybody else up when you were square dancing. So uh, yeah, I guess I wasn't very good at square dancing, so I'll never do that again. And the uh, other thing I want to share with you as you're turning to Romans chapter 4, you're getting there in your Bible, um, the coolest thing. So you all know we, we started an FCA club last year and God's continuing just to honor and bless that for some reason this year beyond what we could ever expect or ima- imagine, Ephesians 3.20. Um, this past week, we had 63 students at the FCA club, which is three times more than we ever had last year. We're approaching 10% of the school is participating in the FCA club, which by God's grace is amazing. But one of the neatest things, so as we're giving students opportunity to help lead the Bible lessons, and um, two, two things actually that happened. First off, um, this past week, we, for the first time at FCA, three weeks in, we were able to clearly talk about repentance and faith from Jonah chapter 3. And uh, for us, hopefully, as you're part of this church, repentance and faith is something that you're familiar with, and that we know that salvation is found by repenting of our sin and faith in Jesus Christ. Easily, and Scott would probably verify this, half that room, that was a foreign concept to them. Um, Kids that are exposed to some version of church on a regular basis, repentance and faith was this new thing to them as we were able to just explain that. So pray um, for just God to really um, mature those seeds that we planted and in their hearts as we continue to think through that. But second to that, I think I shared with you all the first or second week, we asked the students if they would pray at the end of our time together. And this sweet little young lady, she raised her hand and she said, yeah, I'd gladly pray. And she did the Catholic cross thing. And then she began to pray and she said, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And she just recited the Lord's prayer to her That's what she understood prayer to be and how she knew how to pray. And so Scott and I really in that moment, and we talked to some of the teachers, we said, we need to model for these students that prayer goes beyond simply articulating the same ritualistic prayers over and over. We can have a genuine personal conversation with Jesus because of what he's accomplished on the cross. And so this past Friday, that girl volunteered to pray again. And you know how she prayed? Lord Jesus, thank you for this day that we've been able to gather for FCA this morning and learn from the Bible. Her prayer was totally different than it was just two weeks before because she's learning that it's not just this religion-based thing we do, but we get to enter into this personal, intimate knowledge and relationship of Jesus. And so um, all that to say, we need more donuts, by the way. We started with two dozen, now we're up to, we need six dozen every single week um, to feed these kids. And if a donut gets them there and then we get to give them Jesus, I'm I'm all for that. So um, if you want to participate in FCA, please let me or Scott know. We want to connect you to that ministry. Well, hey, let's continue in our series, The Genius of Jesus. Will you stand with me in honor of reading God's Word? We're starting chapter 4 today. We're going to read verses 1 through 5 of Romans. Romans chapter 4, and God's Word says this. What then will we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him for righteousness. Verse 4, 
Now to the one who works, pay is not credited as a gift, but as something owed. But to the one who does not work, but believes on him who declares the unrighteous or the ungodly to be righteous, his faith is credited for righteousness. Let's pray. God, we love you. Lord, we thank you for your word. And God, I pray now as we walk through these verses together, would you teach us, mold us, and shape us into the likeness of Jesus? God, what a privilege we have on a weekly basis to gather with your people around your word to, to, to know you more deeply and intimately. God, would your spirit be among us and teach us today. Give us open ears to hear from you, Lord. Not just open ears, but soft and receptive hearts, God. And we want to be obedient vessels, Lord, ones that you can use as we walk out our faith in Jesus the rest of this week. So God, would you be among us? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, at our house, when it gets close to bedtime for our kids, we have a a pretty similar ritual each evening. We follow a pretty simple pattern. We're sitting upstairs in our living room, and it's almost the same every single night where our girls come in, it's almost bedtime, and we tell them this. We need you to go get on your pajamas, to go use the restroom, and then brush your teeth, and after you do those things, come back, we'll pray with you before you go to bed. Put on your pajamas, use the restroom, brush teeth. If you were a child at my house, you probably already have that memorized. It's very simple. But without fail, parents, this is for you this morning. We're going to sympathize together tonight. We have followed this exact same routine for years in our home. But without fail, when we get ready for bed every single night, and last night, it literally happened last night, Friday night, it happened Friday night. We followed the same routine for years. Every single night, granted, without fail, My youngest daughter, when it's bedtime, will say, all right, girls, we need you to go do the things that you do before you get to bed. And without fail, we've done this for years, my youngest daughter will hit her knees and she'll say, but I don't know what to do. Can any parents sympathize with that this morning? I don't know what to do. And it's as a parent, you look at him and you go, are you kidding me? Like, are you serious right now? We followed that. I've explained this to you over and over every night for how many years? And then what do you do as a parent? Me and Liz, we're sitting on the couch in our living room. We look at each other. You kind of roll your eyes. You take your hand. You drag it down your face. And you say, okay, I'll say it again. And I, I say that and I joke about that because I, I feel like that's where Paul is with the Romans now as we approach chapter 4. We're beginning chapter 4 today, 17 weeks in this book, Genius of Jesus, trying to understand the gospel on a more in-depth level from this book. 13 more chapters to go, by the way, so we're slowly chipping away at the book of Romans. And now as Paul enters here into chapter 4 in these five verses, he's really starting this lengthy review for you and I of everything he's just talked about in verses 21 through 31 of Romans chapter 3, that right standing with God, we're going to echo this over and over. Right standing with God, salvation is available to all humans, no matter who you are, where you've come from, what you've done. Salvation is available to all of us through faith in Jesus Christ. We have said that so much over the last five weeks that you're probably thinking to yourself right now, are you serious? We got to do this again? Yes, you should have watched online today, but you didn't. Ha ha, you're stuck now, all right? So in chapter four, what he's doing is Paul says, okay, I'm going to anticipate what these Jews in Rome are probably thinking. 
He's explained to them over and over and specifically in verses 21 through 31 of chapter 3 that salvation is found through faith in Jesus Christ. No stone unturned. Explained it to them over and over and over. And here's what he anticipates the Jews in Rome now saying. Wait, what? We, We still don't understand. I mean, how do you spend so much time explaining this concept over and over to these people, yet Paul still um, anticipates them saying, we, we don't understand, because he, here's what he's thinking that they're going to ask or argue or, or bring up there in Rome. Um, okay, wait a second. Okay, so salvation found by faith in Jesus Christ, repentance through faith. Yeah, I'm, I'm tracking with you there. Um, what about Abraham? How did Abraham find salvation? What about David? How did, how did he find salvation? Did, were they saved by, by faith too, or was it this other avenue? Because it seems like they were saved by works, and, but it seems like maybe faith was also part of this discussion. And the Jews in Rome are going, uh, what do you, we don't understand what you're saying, Paul. And I, I picture Paul in this moment, that's where I shared that story in the beginning. I picture Paul taking his hand and dragging it down his face, and he's going, okay, I'll say it again. Let me explain this to you again, that, and, and write this down if you're a note taker, if you're not, if you've got a good memory, hopefully. Right standing with God. We're going to drill this home over and over. Right standing with God. Righteousness is found and has always been found through repentance of sin and faith in God. God's avenue of making you and I right with him again has never changed. Look at verse 1 there of Romans chapter 4. He's anticipating this first question. Look at what they say in verse 1. What then will we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? I mean, right out of the gate, he's just explained repentance and faith and all of these things. And he anticipates the Jews after hearing that going, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. We've got a question. What about Abraham? How was Abraham made right with God. Pastor Joe last week um, dealt with this idea of, of faith and works. By the way, I heard probably half a dozen to eight times that the message Pastor Joe preached last week was the greatest message he's ever preached from the platform at Living Hope Columbus. So that's awesome, by the way. But let me tell you something. Um, this is important. Understand, like, we don't do this for the accolades of people, but do you know how good that made him felt to hear that? Let me encourage you occasionally. I'm not saying this for me. I'm saying this for, for Joe and Seth and everybody else. Sometimes it's good to encourage. You know, we, don't, we do it for the audience of one. We, we preach to the glory of God and hopefully the equipping of the saints. But sometimes when people give, somebody gives you a little fist bump or a high five or a pat on the back, that's really helpful. And I told Joe a few times, I'm like, dude, I heard it again this week. Somebody said that was the greatest message you've ever preached. And he's like, didn't feel like it, but I appreciate that, you know. That's a good thing, by the way, to do. So that's, that's just a side note. But he dealt with this idea of, of grace and faith and this tension that we, we find ourselves in as followers of Jesus, that we're, we're saved by grace through faith, and then works overflow from that reality. It's not works that save us, it's faith that does. But the Jews in Rome, they're, they're stuck, because they're asking this question here in verse 1. You can underline Abraham's name, circle, forefather, according to our, the faith. Because they're in their mind, they're going, wait, what about Abraham? I'm Abraham, the, the patriarch of Israel, the father of Israel. Abraham lived 2,000 years before Jesus walked the earth. Paul, this gospel that you're now explaining to us, um, Abraham was 2,000 years before that. So how could Abraham have been made right with God? What did it take 
for him to be made righteous? Was it really this faith thing or works like it seemed? Because if Abraham was required to keep God's law, which is what they thought, then wouldn't he have been saved by works? But you're saying it was by faith. How's this all pieced together, Paul? And what's Paul do? He drags his hand down his face. He says, all right, guys, I'm going to explain it to you one more time. I'm going to say it again. Point number one, let's just ask a few questions today quickly. Paul asks, asks the question, was it, was it works? Was it works? Starting in verse 2, Paul uses a two-letter word in the English language. It's the word if. I would circle that, underline it, highlight it if you have a hard copy of the Scriptures. Because what he's doing there in the Greek language is what he's doing is that word if is a, a, a conditional word. Where what he's about to say is he said, we're going to assume what I'm about to say is true. It's not But for argument's sake, let's just pretend and assume that this is true. So what's the argument? Verse 2, that if Abraham was justified by works. Let's assume for a second, Paul says, that Abraham was justified by his works. Let's just take a moment and assume that everything Abraham wrote in verses 21 through 31 didn't matter and weren't, like, wasn't true. Let's just assume for a second, he says, that salvation is actually found through human effort. If that's true then what's the natural conclusion if we can save ourselves through our own effort? He goes on to say, if Abraham was justified by his works, then he has something to boast about. Joe dealt with this last week a little bit. That if Abraham was made right with God through his own effort, then Abraham would have something to brag about because he would have had the ability to deal with his own sin issue apart from God. Just echo this real quick. That would also mean that that's true for you and that's true for me. That if it was possible for us to be made right, right with God, excuse me, through our own effort, Paul's going on to say, then the work of Jesus wasn't needed. Doesn't that sound like blasphemy to you, by the way? Like just this idea that we could somehow be made right with God through our own self-righteous effort. And Paul says, if that is true, then we have something to boast about because how great are we? We were able to get ourselves right with God. But you know what I have a hard time finding in the scriptures? And I think this is, we could, Paul would echo this. I don't see anywhere in the scriptures where self-reliance and self-pride actually align with the heart of God. Do we know that God hates like our own self-righteousness, that God hates pride so much? And for us to think that somehow we could be made right with God through our own effort, man, that goes against the very heart of God. A couple of verses, Solomon wrote in Proverbs 8 verse 13, to fear the Lord is to hate evil. I underlined this for you. I think it'll be on the screen. Oh, it's not underlined. Underline this in your Bible. This is God speaking. I hate arrogant pride. I mean, I think that's pretty clear there. I hate arrogant pride, evil conduct, perverse speech. James goes on to say, but God gives greater grace. Therefore, God, he says, God resists the proud. That's that idea of like strong arming someone. You stick your hand out and you push them out of the way. I don't want anything to do with you. God hates the proud. What's Paul leading our hearts to today? What's he trying to explain to the Romans? How foolish of us to even consider that we don't need God to intervene in our lives. Like how foolish of us to consider that we, we think that we can make it through this life on our, our own. How foolish of us, and I say this from a heart of humility, to think that we can deal with our own sin issue. 
I mean, that goes against the very heart of God. And Paul says, if that was even possible, then you would have a right to boast, but you wouldn't even have the right to boast before God. That's an interesting verse there in verse 2. You could deal with your own sin issue and you could boast about it, but how dare you even think that you could ever boast before God? Here's a little side note that Paul gives us here. No matter what we believe about this issue and no matter what we think the Scriptures teach, none of us ever get to boast before God. We never get to stand before God with a puffed-up chest and tell Him how great we are. Man, we need to hear that in our cultural climate today. I'm going to do my own thing my own way, however I see fit. And when I get to heaven, I'll tell God how it is. And Paul says, no, 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 no. May we never allow a mindset to creep into our lives that gets us to somehow think that we get to stand before God with a puffed-up chest. This is a reminder in this verse for you and I that someday every lofty idea, every prideful worldview, every person, culture, everybody who's ever had breath in their lungs will someday bow before the feet of Jesus Christ in his throne. It's just a little side note there. Let me give you a verse in Philippians chapter 2. For this reason, God highly exalted Jesus and gave him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven. Listen to this too, on earth and under the earth. Do you know no one, no one, even those who spend an eternity separated from God in a place called hell, will get away from bowing before the feet of Jesus Christ? Everyone someday will bow, but we have a choice. This is, oh, this is good preaching. You ready? You can bow before Jesus in this life voluntarily, or you can bow before Jesus forcefully in the next one. <laughs> I would choose to do it in this life. Submit yourself wholly over to him as Lord of everything, and don't be forced to bow before him in the next life. Because when we see Jesus Christ in all his glory, even if we are going to be separated from him for all eternity, we will have no other resource, recourse but to bow our knee before him. We don't get to boast before God. Paul's reminding us, generally speaking, but specifically even when it comes to this legalistic idea of salvation, that God hates boasting. He hates self-arrogant pride. And it goes, even just a basic understanding of the character of God voids out this idea that somehow we can be made right through our own self-effort because that is a version of pride and self-righteousness and God hates that very thing. So Paul looks at the Jews in Rome and he says, okay, we've settled that again. Now, how was Abraham saved? How was he made right with God? And he asks, I never saw this until this week. This is the greatest question in Scripture. Verse 3, what do the Scriptures say? What do the, I, man, I, I underlined it in my Bible. I encourage you to do the same thing. Look at what he says. Verse, verse 3, very first part. How is Abraham made right with God? What's Paul say? What does the Scripture say? If we want to answer this question, what does the Scripture say? So he's trying to show them, okay, let's look at your Old Testament and let's see the continuity between what God was doing then and what God is doing now. Let's see the continuity between Abraham's salvation being by faith and our salvation being by faith. There's a little side note there for us too. I think this is important. One of the most important questions that we can ask ourselves when we are approached with any crossroads in life is what do the Scriptures say? That's so important. Sometimes we, we come to these crossroads in life and it's like, well, this is what I feel about this situation. This is this over here. No, and Paul says, no, you're at a crossroads. The Jews were at a crossroads in Rome. They couldn't figure out how Abraham was saved. What does he say? What do the scriptures say? 
When your theology as a follower of Jesus gets challenged and you're approached with something that you don't quite understand, don't go to Google. Ask yourself the question, what do the scriptures say? Like when we struggle to believe what God has said, to believe what God is doing around us, when, when pain and trials seem to be surmounting, we need to go back and ask ourselves, what do the scriptures say about this? When my faith is weak, what do the scriptures say? When I don't know how to deal with an ever-changing culture around me and what my duty is as a follower of Jesus to deal with that, what do we ask ourselves? What do the scriptures say? In every aspect of life, marriage, parenting, job, friendship, anything, what do the scriptures say? And whatever the scriptures say is where we choose to anchor our lives. That's what Paul is doing with the Jews here. He says, God said it back then. He's saying it again now. Now anchor your life to that very thing. So what do the scriptures say? These people weren't saved by their works, so how were they saved? Point number two is, was it faith? He goes on here in verse 3, the second part of verse 3, to quote Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. When Abraham was, was called by God out of his homeland to follow him to an unknown place. So he's using Genesis 15, 6 here in Romans verse four, chapter 4, verse 3. I want to read both of them because what's Paul doing? He says, what God said in your Old Testament, what God said in the Torah is the same thing that God is still saying today. Nothing has changed. Abraham was always saved by faith. Romans 4 verse 3. What's the scripture say? I love that so much. We're going to get a t-shirt. Thomas, get on that. What does the scripture say? All right. He says that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. He says, by the way, that's also what the scripture said in Genesis 15 verse 6. That's what Moses wrote down. Abraham believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. Paul's showing the continuity between the Old Testament Scriptures and the New Testament Scriptures. How was Abraham made right with God? What does the Scripture say? He believed God. Genesis 15, verse 6. It's echoed in Romans 4, verse 3. He put his faith in God. In the Hebrew, that word believe, it simply means this. It means that you put your assurance in something else that's not you. It means you're not anchoring your trust in yourself, but you're anchoring your trust in God. Abraham's salvation was not anchored in his own self-effort. It was anchored in God. He chose to give his own self-reliance over to God, and God gave him a gift back. What was it? Righteousness. I love that so much. Because that is a simple explanation of what salvation is. When we acknowledge the reality that apart from God, we are hopeless, sinful, and there's nothing we can do about it. We can't rely on ourselves for that. So what do we choose to do? We choose to anchor our lives to someone else where we say the object of my faith is no longer me because I can't save me. So I'm going to make God the object of my faith and trust him to save me. It's trusting Jesus to do what I can't do for myself. And as a result, what happens it says that it was credited to Abraham as righteousness. For us, this side of the cross, you see that it was, uh, uh, Paul talks about in Corinthians, that righteousness was imputed to our account, credited to our account. Do we see the difference here between a works-based faith and a, a, a faith in God-based faith? Right? Biblical salvation is simply this, belief in God's promise, and then my works overflow from that. That's what Joe talked about last week. I put my faith in Jesus, and then I live for him. John, uh, Jesus talked about that in John 15. 
the, the fruit that overflows from my life. Nobody's ever been out in an apple field, and if there's no apples on the tree, you don't look at that apple tree and go, that is a healthy tree. Goodness, that's a healthy tree, right? What do you want to see on an apple tree? Apples, because it's proof and evidence of an apple tree. That's why as followers of Jesus, if we claim faith in Jesus Christ, but there's no evidence of that by how we live our life, nobody would look at somebody who says, gosh, goodness. That's the fact I came to you and I said, you know what, I'm an astronaut. You'd be like, you're an idiot. No, you're not. Yeah, I am. I, tr- I really am. I made the decision that I was going to be an astronaut. I even bought a suit. You're gonna, have you ever been to space? No. You're going to go to space? No. Been through the training? No. But you're an astronaut? Yeah. You say, go home, weirdo. You need a nap and a Snickers bar. Like, what's wrong with you? I mean, following Jesus is the same way. I mean, if, we, if we claim faith in Christ and it doesn't overflow to how we live, I don't know if we have faith in Christ. There's evidence there, but what's a legalistic salvation? This is what Paul's like, preaching against here in Rome, that I believe in myself and that results in work that somehow will please God. Paul says that's absolute nonsense. You don't have to try harder to please God. Jesus did it for you. Why would you add to the work of the cross? The whole book of Galatians that we studied last year was simply this. Jesus did it all. Stop adding to it. It's Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. We don't have to add anything to our salvation. Jesus did it all. We simply believe and anchor ourselves to what he already accomplished on the cross for us. Point number three. He goes on to explain this a little bit more and we're done. Paul says, let me say it again. Salvation's in my own effort. God owes it to me. Why is that? Verse 4. Now to the one who works, pay is not credited as a, a gift, but as something owed. That if somehow we could work for our own salvation, this is important too. If we could work for our own salvation, it is not a gift from God and it's no longer grace. Paul wrote, I was talking to someone this morning about their favorite verse, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Paul said in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, that we're saved by grace through faith. It's not of ourselves, but it's a gift from God. Salvation is a gift that is offered to you and I, meaning if we could do it on our own, it's not a gift that God had given us. Scripture always complements Scripture, so the the message is going to be the same. If we could somehow work for our salvation, Paul says that God would owe it to you, like it would no longer be a, a gift. And I just had this simple thought here, and this just messed with me for about an hour this week. I can't imagine standing before the throne of God demanding anything. Goodness gracious. I was reading in Isaiah 6 this week when I was thinking about that, when Isaiah had that vision of the throne of God. And he's standing before the throne of God and he sees the thunder and the lightning and the clouds and so much all around, just the glory of God on display. And he didn't walk up to God and going, hey, big guy, I got something to tell you. We don't get to do that. You know what Isaiah's words were in Isaiah chapter 6? Woe is me, I'm as good as ruined. The message version of that, I think I shared that with you a few weeks ago. The message version says it this way. I'm a dead man in the presence of God. I mean, how dare us ever think we could demand anything from God? A works-based salvation demands from God that he give us something that we have earned. And can I remind us today that God owes us nothing. And there's nothing we can do to make God indebted to us. That is utter foolishness. And thinking that somehow that we can earn our salvation through our own effort goes against the very character of God.
But look at verse 5. But to the one who does not work, this is you and I, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited for righteousness. You see, the inverse of the individual who goes before God and demands something is the individual who understands, like Isaiah, that I am a guilty, wretched sinner. It's you and I who, by God's grace and mercy expressed to us, can be made right with God again. Not because we did anything. Not because we did anything. All we do is we make God the object of our faith rather than ourselves, realizing that we can't do anything and we need Him to do it for us. And what does the Scripture say in verse 5 as we close? And when we do that, God will credit our account. We are right with God again. Jesus did what we couldn't do. And so the question for us today, we assume nothing. Do you believe those things? I think sometimes we can get caught in a cycle of of self-righteous living, thinking that somehow that's going to make God pleased with us. And that's not true. Are you trying to please God through your own efforts, or do you really believe that Jesus 100% appeased God for you, and now you get to live for Him? That's, That's where it's different. Let me share with you all again, I've shared this before, the bad news, worst news, and good news of the gospel. The bad news is, and we're echoing this again, that we are sinners separated from a holy God. The worst news is there's nothing we can do about it. You know how tragic that would be if that's, if that's where God put a period on the, the story? That we were separated from Him and there was nothing we could do about it, period. And He just existed in eternity apart from us, but that's not where He puts a period. Brother, God puts a comma. I love that. And he, the good news is that Jesus made a way. That it's not based on our own self-righteousness, but it's based on the righteousness of Jesus. That he absorbed God's wrath and punishment for sin for you and for me when he hung on that cross 2,000 years ago. That's good news. But what's the best news? That just like Paul is echoing to the Romans over and over and over, he says that's available to you today. That you can stop trying to do it through your own merit and effort, and you can actually anchor your life to Jesus Christ and trust Him for your salvation rather than yourself. Have you ever done that personally? Let me pray for us. And as I pray, if you've never done that, let's invite you to do that today. Let's pray together. God, we love you. God, I pray if there's anybody today, Lord, we don't want to assume anything that perhaps has not fully and wholly given themselves over to Jesus Christ, but they're still trusting in themselves for salvation, thinking that somehow that they can be made right with God through their own effort. I pray that Paul's words here in Romans 4 would echo and ping around in their heart today. And that they would fully understand that there's nothing that they can do in their own effort to be made right with God. But they can choose today to place their faith, their belief, and their life in the hands of Jesus Christ and trust Him as the very one to make them right with God. I pray even in this moment, Lord, the prayer doesn't have to be complicated. It's simple. Lord, I turn my life over to You because I know I'm a sinner and I need You and You're my only hope. I pray they would do that in this moment. God, we thank You for Your Word. I pray we never grow weary of the Gospel. But as we gather around the gospel each week, Lord, I pray that it continues to remind us how much we need Jesus. 
and how desperate and dependent we are upon him. God, we thank you for the cross. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Thank you.